Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are with us for the first time today. Thank you for making us your church home for an hour. Well, before we get into the message, I'd like to recognize all the veterans who are with us today. Please stand. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for all you do. And uh, many of the servants who are serving you today, the worship and song team, myself, are in blue because we are um, honoring an organization called Wear Blue, which remembers those who have fallen in service to our country. Uh, we, we love you who protect us, and we are grateful for your sacrifice and your service. We pray for you regularly, and we believe for God's blessing on your life. Thank you. Turn with me over to the book of Galatians. Galatians, we're going to look at chapter 5. We're going to continue our series on the fruit of the Spirit. And as we're turning there, I'd just like to say thank you very much. A couple of weeks ago, you all decided to bless me by contributing to my life and um, through Pastor's Appreciation Month. And I want you to know it's a pleasure to be able to serve you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The title of the message is, The Fruit of the Spirit, Joy. Galatians 5.22, Paul is writing and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Lord, help us as we study your word. There are nine evidences of the, of the Spirit of God being in your life. And, and Last week we talked about love. The prior week we kind of out, outlined an entire summary of the supernaturalness of these elements of who God is in our life. His character, uh, manifesting who he is to the world, becoming more like him through these traits on a regular basis. And I want to reemphasize the fact that every one of these are supernatural. They are not those which can be brought about by reformation through just behavioral modification. They are supernatural things that God begins to manifest in your life as a result of the Spirit of the Lord being in you. You can't just work on this and be better. You can't. These are things that are born only of the Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that people every once in a while can't be kind. That's not it. What it does mean is that when you manifest the essence of these traits in the way that is contrary to the world, world's presentation, that the only way you can do it is if you're born of the Spirit. Last week we talked about love. This week we're going to talk about joy. Now there are three, there are three parts of these nine, three elements, that can only be best reflected when you are in relationship with one another. The other six don't have to be reflected in relationship with somebody else, but they should be. So, but three of them can only be seen uh, if you are in relationship to somebody else. Love. Love is a verb, and you can't just feel it. You have to do it, and you have to do it to somebody else, both to God and to someone else. 
person. Kindness. There's no way you can just be kind to yourself. <laughs> Some of you think you can. <laughs> Kindness is that which needs to be reflected to somebody else. And then faithfulness. Faithfulness is the reflection of a stewardship that has been given and now you are uh, exercising your good uh, uh, workmanship to make sure that you are completing the task that has been given to you by somebody else. Faithfulness. The other six, self-control, gentleness, peace, patience, those things are internal. Now they are to be reflected in such a way that people can see it, but they don't have to be to be resident. Joy is one of those. And it's probably the most underappreciated fruit of the Spirit, manifestation of God being in your life. Every, every other one you can say, well, I need peace because I'm about to go crazy. Yeah. I need patience because I'm married. <laughs> I, have, I have an unreasonable supervisor. My boss is nuts. I need patience. You can always point to something, but joy, you think, eh, optional. I mean, is it really important? God would not have put it there, especially right after love, if it wasn't. And joy is aside from happiness. Happiness depends on the circumstances of your life. It can be confused or almost synonymic with joy, but happiness is different. Happiness is that which you feel when Publishers Clearinghouse shows up at your front door. <laughs> Joy fills you, but it's really because they showed up. It's happiness. It's circumstantial. It's because something happened that was good. And you responded in a way that was commensurate to the goodness that was given to you. But joy is deeper. It not only does that, but it, it's, it's that which expresses a, 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 an elation, a gladness, even when life does not treat you well. And it's not because you're just trying to counteract the negative with positive. We're not talking about karma. Aura. I beg you, get rid of those words if you use them. Good energy. Get rid of the words. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a manifestation of the Spirit of God in your life. And it's, it, it's reflected from a perspective, not just a feeling that you actually believe God is on the throne. And regardless of how life is going, he's going to work even the bad stuff out for good, and in the midst of your mess, he's going to make you feel and respond better than if he were not there. And so you can begin to relate to him in a way that allows you to experience joy even in the midst of difficulty, because you know at the end of the difficulty, you're going to be joyful anyway. So if you're going to be joyful at the end, you might as well be joyful now. That's faith. Anybody can be joyful when things are going well. But our faith allows us the privilege of seeing beyond the difficulty and, and trusting him and saying, Lord, I still believe you. Even though life is horrible, I believe that you're going to make it better and I choose to allow my soul to emote to you rather than that. That's the basis of joy, I'm telling you. It's one of the greatest gifts God has given and the only way to amplify it is to look at how things were in the beginning and how they deteriorated. Adam and Eve had it really good. I mean, good 
is not even able to be defined rightly by us because we define good by bad. We think something is really great compared to how things are really horrible. But Adam and Eve had the subjective great. There was no bad with which to compare. It was perfect. And our version of perfect doesn't even come close to whatever perfect was there. Our, our perfect is imperfect. Their perfect was perfect. Perfect abundance. Perfect moderation. Perfect relationship with one another. Perfect weather. Yeah, we, we never have perfect weather. We just have better than bad weather. Everything was unusually great in ways that we can't even describe because we run out of good English. It was so amazing. And God was there every day without the impediment of trying to get over the flaws of our humanity. Walking with them, fellowshipping with them, loving them. And they, in turn, reciprocating, loving him. No brokenness, no barrier, no divide. It was all just perfect. He had a responsibility. And he felt good about his job every day. He loved his job every day. His job was to, to care for the garden, to tend it, to make sure it was fruitful and producing what it should, and to make sure things stayed in the should and stayed out the shouldn't. It was really easy, very simple, and he was good at his job, except for one day. He allowed this serpent to come in, and the serpent was embodied, was inhabited by Satan. And God said, listen, there's one thing you can't do in the garden, Adam and Eve. You can eat any tree you want, just enjoy, knock yourself out, but you can't eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you will die. Don't do it. But knock yourself out with any other. And this, this was a big place. I mean, the, the, in retrospect, the book of Ezekiel speaks about the garden of the Lord, and it says that there was a mountain in the middle of it. Now, all of the topography we understand today is not the topography, the geography we know and landmass, is not the topography that Adam and Eve had. Because we know somewhere around Genesis chapter 10, it says in, in the time of a guy named Peleg that the earth divided. And so when continents shift, things run into one another. Subterranean plates hit each other. And mountains may have been formed later that weren't there in the beginning. When you think about the flood, and it says that it covered, the water covered the entire tops of the mountains, and people think about Everest. It was, a, was the water that high? Well, Everest may not have been there. You have to take it all in context. And we don't know what kind of mountain was in the Garden of the Lord, but we do know that it says there was one. So when there's a mountain in a garden, it's a little bit bigger, meaning the garden, than your backyard patch. This was a huge place. Thousands of trees he had to care for. And it was all beautiful. And all just for him and his wife. A lifetime of vacation. In paradise. Just don't eat from that one tree. Just one. They blew it. The enemy deceives Eve and Adam. And they eat. And you talk about the beginning of a downslide. Whew. 
First it says that their eyes were opened. They'd never seen each other like they are now seeing each other. Eve had never seen Adam as a man who was unwilling to stand up for what was right. To protect her. To defend her. It says that when she got some of the fruit and ate, she gave to her husband who was with her. So he was right there listening to everything that the enemy was saying to his wife. And he said nothing. He didn't protect her. He didn't help her. He didn't defend her. She'd never seen him like this. Her eyes were open to a new version of Adam. And he'd never seen her like this. How did you listen to him? Why did you continue to have a conversation with him? You knew he was trying to deceive you from everything I told you not to do. It was wrong. Why did you go that way? And then you just freely ate. Why? He'd never seen her like that. And this is why Paul says it's important for us to let the redemptive benefits from the cross touch our eyes. Because when somebody sins against you, generally you don't see them like you did before they sinned. You see them completely different. You don't trust them anymore. Generally, you, you imprison them in, in, in the jail of their last offense and you keep them there. Because you don't, you don't think about them the same way. They hurt you deeply. And you can't. You can't bring them close. You've got to hold them at arm's distance. And Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We regard nobody according to the flesh any longer. Though we used to look at Christ that way, we look at him no longer. That Paul said, I will not let fleshly conduct inhibit me from experiencing the new creation reality which God has, has, has begun to do in somebody's life. I'm not. I'm not. And you talk about a church with whom he had odds. Corinth was sideways with him all the time. There's one letter we don't even have that he wrote to them. When Paul has to write three letters to you, he's got a lot to say generally about your misconduct. So we have two, but it says in the first one, there's a letter he wrote previously. And so Corinth and him were always at odds in most of the letter. I mean, he gives some platitudes at the beginning, but by the time he gets to verse 11 or 12 in the, in the first chapter, he's boom, 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 boom. You did this, and you change here, change that. And then it's just 13, 16 chapters. I don't understand. I'm change. Problems, fix it. But every time he was addressing things, he was trying to bring them in, not push them out. It was redemptive. And he said, I choose not to look at you, look at you through the, the lens of being disobedient. I choose to look at you and view you as people who have been redeemed, even though you are hurting me and the cause of the gospel greatly. We need our eyes touched. Adam and Eve couldn't see one, and they saw one another so differently that they had to cover themselves. It's kind of, mm, I don't want to... Mm. <clears throat> It's not abnormal for a husband and wife to not have clothes on. I'm just saying. <laughs> but they were so disaffected by how they viewed one another, they had to close themselves in, one, in front of one another. That's, that's, that's messing with your eyes. That's the first thing that happened. Secondly, God came to fellowship with them, and they ran. That never happened before. So much so that God had to say, where are you? Now, he knew. But he wanted them to know where they were. How, do you know how far you've gone? 
I can find you. But do you know how far you've gone that I actually have to look for you now? You used to run to my appointment. Now you're running away from it. Adam, what happened? Well, we had to hide because we knew you were here. Why would you? Did you eat from the, the tree of which I told you not to eat? So they viewed one another differently. They ran from God. They had to clothe themselves in different stuff that wouldn't last. And then Adam doesn't even respond in a dignified way in the midst of his disobedience. He doesn't buck up. The first thing he says when God asks him, did you blow it? Well, let me, let me tell you what had happened. There was this woman that you gave me. So it's not, it wasn't even he just threw her, her under the bus. He's saying to God, I didn't ask for her. I mean, I woke up one day and she was there. I was cool. I was cool. But you decided it was a good idea for me to have this person. It's getting worse. And they needed marital counseling after that. Can you, can, can, I'm telling can you imagine Eve, God addressing Adam, Adam throwing her under the bus? She... <laughs> I have nobody. I have no, my husband treats me like this. I thought he threw me under the bus with God Almighty. Like if judgment happens to me, he's okay with that. As long as he gets to escape. Eve, what happened? Well, it was really the serpent. I mean, not him. He was, he messed up. It was the serpent that was there. Everybody's blaming everything or everybody else. And then curses come. And it's not that God had to pronounce the curses in order for them to come. He was just announcing that they were there because of their disobedience. He was making them aware of what tomorrow looks like. Serpent, on your belly you will crawl. Woman, you're going to have pain in childbearing. But you still have to fulfill the great commission. You have no choice. This is my will. But it's going to be very painful. And your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to like your husband more. It means that the Hebrew is crouching like a lion looking for the opportunity to pounce on your prey. Adam was always the leader, not a domineering one, a servant-oriented leader. One who recognized he needed help. And when God allowed Adam to understand he needed help, he was grateful when he gave him Eve. And the recognition of needing help is not just, I have to have somebody to work for me. It's the recognition of, you can't do it all. You're not all that. You're not God. You have weaknesses. She is here to supply those in strength. It wasn't domineering. It was a recognition that this was an equal coming alongside. Yet he was to be the leader of the family. 
Leadership does not mean you lord it over. Leadership means you serve and allow the other party to do what God has called them to do within the context of the relationship so that the relationship and all of its ministry benefit and service can benefit the people it's supposed to. That the kingdom can move from your household to others in a way that impacts the world with goodness of God. Now, your desire is going to be for your husband so that you, re you recognize he's kind of an idiot. He not only didn't do what he was supposed to do in protecting me, he threw me under the bus when he had an opportunity to protect me again. Didn't take responsibility. And I have to follow him? No, 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 no. I'm going to take the wheel. That will be your, your temptation every day of your life. <laughs> Crickets! I knew it! Crickets! The curse was not that he would be over you. That's always been. The curse was that you want to take the wheel because you realize how flawed he is. And then after the curses, and for Adam it was your, your, this, this garden, really great, but now you're going you're gonna to yield. When you get to the ground and start working, you're going to have to sweat when you work. Adam never sweated. That's cool. I mean, that's what, I don't know how that is, but he said, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to work. And whatever you pull from the earth will be thorns and thistles compared to what you had in the garden. Now, I don't know whether it was actually things that had thorns that stuck in your, you know, hit you and poked you in your mouth. I think what God was trying to communicate is the stuff you will eat outside of the garden and as a result of the curse will not benefit you as much as you think it is. It will. In fact, it, it might hurt you. And have, do we not deal with that now? I mean, you go into, go into Giant, Harris Teeter, Food Line, and you get an apple. Don't you think, I wonder if this is going to be good for me. Is it non-GMO? <laughs> Pesticides used? Are these legacy seeds or not? Is it organic? With your chickens, are they free-range or not? <laughs> are, there, are, there bi, bi, are, there, are there antibiotics used in these chickens? Do they eat organic seed? Do they chomp on organic bugs? Where do the bugs come from that they eat? <laughs> Everything we're thinking about now, what can I put in my body that won't hurt me? Because the stuff that everybody else out there is saying is supposed to be good for me gives me cancer. It gives me problems. It changes my hormones. It does all of this. I don't want that. Thorns and thistles is what we're having to navigate regularly. Just with food. Takes a lot. And then lastly, they were homeless. They got kicked out of the garden. You talk about a bad day. That's a really bad day. Where your marriage is severely on the rocks. Your relationship with God has unalterably changed. Your job description has got significantly harder. You're going to reap half as much with twice as much effort. You have to have children, but it's going to feel like you're dying when you do it. You're not going to like the leadership that's over you, but it's all you got, and you'd be worse. 
and now you're homeless. The insertion of joy had to be one of the greatest gifts because depression and discouragement had to hit them like a freight train because they saw Eden every day. Every day they lived outside of the garden looking at what they had and realized they could never have it again. And it was all their fault. Discouragement had to live at Adam's door. Every day waking up thinking, I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family. I've never worked this hard in my life and I can't make my money reach the end of the month. And Eve, why in the world did I this? I put us in such peril. My husband is out there working so hard and he can't figure it out. It's all my fault. And then when they had kids, they were so happy and then one killed the other. Discouragement and depression had to live at their door. The only way they could get around it was if God intentionally allowed them to experience a gift of joy, to realize that there was something for which they could be happy, even in the midst of their pain. And we live in the environment where the world doesn't give us any opportunity to rejoice in and of itself in how it provides for us. There is always one difficult moment after another. As soon as we get to a place where we experience a little bit of joy as a result of some little harvest coming our way, we realize we're right around the corner from the next trial, from the next storm. We know that goodness does not last without impediment. It always comes with speed bumps. Life does not give us what we want and we are constantly swimming upstream. God's remedy for the discouragement that wants to camp out in your house, for the depression that wants to live in your world, is the intentional insertion of joy. To believe that he is your God, regardless of the circumstances that come your way. And he has your best interest in mind because he sent his son for your benefit. And if he's committed to you like that, you can be happy even in the midst of your difficulty. That's how much he loves you. Boy, we need to prize joy. It's a gift from God when everything else is going the wrong way. It's a belief that he really cares when life doesn't. And we need to look at it in three ways. One, we need to look at living life in contrast to the difficulty that comes our way and inserting joy. Two, in concert with the joy that God wants to give us. And three, making sure that we don't rejoice in other people's difficulty. So in contrast, Jesus quoted this passage in Isaiah chapter 61 when he was letting all of his community know that he was the Messiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me and he has anointed me to preach his gospel to the afflicted. To release those who are captive, to open the eyes of the blind, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And to make sure that those who are feeling down have a garland of praise and give the oil of joy for the spirit of heaviness. Jesus began to talk about this, and, and it was part of his inaugural message that would frame all of his ministry. He said, in, in, Matt, in Mark, Matthew chapter 4, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. I am him who is to give this to you. And part of the remedy of life was to give the oil of joy for mourning. It's a gift from God to experience joy, 
not based on everything that might be happening to you. That's contrary. But based on the stuff that you do have. Breathing is a pretty good option. That's a good benefit. Yet, it can be taken in a minute. And God would not be wrong to do so because the wages of sin is death and we have all died. Excuse me, we have all sinned. Every one of us have blown it. Yet, we are, we are so entitled in our mind that if, some, if for some reason God took the breath from somebody, we'd think, how could he? Yet all of us are worthy of death. That we breathe every day is his mercy, which should in turn make us extremely grateful for that which we have rather than mad about what we don't. And in the midst of that gratefulness say, Lord, I can have joy. Because if you want me to be here and that you've given me breath, there must be something that you want me to do that's good for you. And you're favoring my life in order to make it happen. I'm grateful for your power to get up every day. I'm grateful for the strength I have to make it through each difficult moment. God, thank you. The oil of joy for morning. It is God's gift for you to make it through stuff even when stuff doesn't seem like you ought to make it through. Secondly, in concert. This is an interesting passage, and it doesn't sound good, but it's supposed to be encouraging, and I don't know if, if it will be, but we'll try. Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 through 48. Talk about the, the disposition that people ought to have when they serve God. Um, and the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28 are really great. If you obey me and do what I command, I'll make sure you're blessed in every way. When you get up, when you sit down, when you go out, when you come in, when you open your cupboards, they'll be full. When you go out to your flocks, they'll, they'll give you twins. They won't miscarry. Your, your vines won't cast their It's going to be a great day, great life. But if you disobey, there are like three times as many verses about what happens if you disobey in terms of curses. It's really not good. But, but, but everybody, everybody's always trying to figure out, Pastor Brad... Can, can I do this and still go to heaven? Is there anything about snorting cocaine in the Bible? No, 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 you got, you got me there. No, 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 nothing about cocaine. But we look at this passage and we think, why in the world? that God like gives three times as many curses rather than blessings? Well, because he was trying to make sure he kept up with the creativity we have for sin. We create things. We, 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 are, we are really skilled at doing new disobedience. We make up stuff. And so he's got three times as many things. If you do this, if you do that, this will come out. If you do that, if you do that. Do you know how big the Bible would be if he tried to get everything that everybody tried to do bad? You wouldn't be able to carry it. There wouldn't be enough gigabytes in your, in, for your phone to carry your Bible. It'd be so big. So we have this, this part in here which doesn't seem to fit, but it's, it's, it's really important. He says, because you did not serve me with joy and with gladness, 
I will allow you to serve your enemies. They're going to treat you really bad when it happens. Now, why would he say that? Because some people might think, well, I'm serving God. I don't like it, but I'm going to do it. That's not worship. Your heart needs to be involved in what you're doing in order to be compliant. God's not looking for slaves. He's looking for sons, daughters. Now, with respect to obedience, we need to treat it like I have to do this because I need to obey my God. It's not an option. It's not like when the dad says to the son, take out the trash, and three hours later, it hasn't been done. <laughs> not looked as, as, it, as quite as a command. But when it comes to the idea of what it... it little venting, I'm sorry. When it comes to the idea... <laughs> When it comes to the idea of what it means for us to serve, we need to do it with our heart. Because you did not serve me with joy and gladness. You don't get the privilege of being out from under judgment. Joy and gladness ought to be a part. Why? Because I have provided for you people like I have provided for nobody else. I have given you manna in the wilderness for 40 years. That has never happened to any people in the history of man. Yet I provided for you stuff that just came on the ground every morning. And all you had to do, you didn't have to plant. You didn't have to cultivate. You didn't have to harvest. All you had to do is take a spoon and a cup. Get out there and get breakfast. Bring it in. Grind it up. Make flour and make bread. Every morning for 40 years, it was not dependent on where you were, meaning the, the property, location. Wherever you were, it showed up because you were there, not because you were in the right spot. That's how I provided for you. And you think you can serve me by complaining every day? Begrudgingly? Do you see how I provided for you? And yet the people of Israel... Woke up one day, came to Moses mad. We are tired of this manna. We want meat. It wasn't a request. It was a complaint. I beg you, never get tired of your miracle. You asked God for that job. You begged him for a job. He gave you a job. Now you're mad you have to drive into your job. You're mad they're not paying you enough. You're mad you have that supervisor. You're mad about everything. And you're complaining rather than asking. I beg you, get happy about how he's provided rather than mad about what you don't have. Serve him with joy and gladness. Provision here, and then there's provision there. So you got provision here, and stuff you're doing. Then Jesus had the disciples, as I close. He was going on, they had him on a short-term mission. And they came back, and they said, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. It, is, it was amazing. I mean, we have that kind of authority. And Jesus said, I'm glad for you, but don't, don't rejoice that just the demons were subject to you in my name. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So at their highest point of success in ministry, while Jesus was on the earth, he said, I'm glad for you, but there's something even greater. No matter how great it is here, it's going to be greater there. And I beg you, even if it's not good here, always have the perspective. You're not going to hell.
I know that sounds simple, but that will change your life when everything is going wrong because you'll get happy in the midst of difficulty. You realize this is just a blink. This 70, 80, 90, if you're really fortunate, 100, it's just a blink when it comes to eternity. And I'm going to get to spend the rest of forever with him. Lord, even though my life is a wreck, I ain't going to hell. Thank God. I ain't going to hell. I ain't going to hell. It's a good day. It's a good day. How do you keep joy? You have a perspective about what he's doing here that's different than everybody else. And you have a perspective about what he's going to do there. That's how you keep joy. This allows you to swipe left on the curse. You didn't think I had it like that, did you? I get you. I get you. I get you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And then lastly, make sure you do not ever, and I'm skipping a part because I preached too long, make sure you do not ever rejoice in your enemy's failure, their judgment. Don't use joy for that. Don't use joy for that. Proverbs 24, 17 says, when your enemy falls, don't rejoice. And let me tell you why. Even when God brings his judgment and discipline to our lives, it's always mixed with mercy. If we continue to breathe, there's mercy there. Because there's always an opportunity to change and let this judgment be a teaching lesson so that we don't go back. And if you're watching your enemy fall, you don't want to rejoice over that because you need to have the right perspective. God is trying to get that person to come to him. He's not just trying to be vindictive. He's not trying to judge him without any opportunity to repent. He's trying to use it as a lesson to get to him. And he wants to make you a consistent witness because that person doesn't have the perspective. All they see is the pain. You can be the witness of what it looks like to go through the pain and say, God still loves you. That brings them to him. He wants there to be something on the inside of us that not only is caring about others. See, this passage in Proverbs and the other passages that we see that seem to be discontinuity, discontinuity, have discontinuity with how God deals with people in the Old Testament, they are consistent with what Jesus began to develop as a theology for the New Testament, which says, love your enemies. And it also gives you perspective. Because for every person out there that you really think needs to get their comeuppance and you'd be, you'd be pretty happy if they did remember there are a bunch of people out there who think the same thing about you if you've lived long enough you've made enemies even if you haven't done what you think is wrong enough for them to be your enemy you may have made enemies just by being right and they're persecuting you for righteousness sake you have to develop the maturity that Jesus had on the cross when he was being beaten in great pain, taking the sin of the world upon his shoulders, not having done anything wrong for what he was suffering, said to the Father, beyond the idea where he needed to forgive him, he had already done that, said to the Father, Daddy, don't get him. Father in heaven, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's where we need to be. Difficulty may come to those who oppose us, but we need to be in concert with God in heart 
and not rejoice? Because we surely wouldn't want people to rejoice over our difficulty. And we want to be merciful. And if, if only you are, if only you, you use this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you have a selfish motivation and you don't want to receive judgment, extend mercy that it might be given back. God will take that. Not highest and best. Highest and best is that you really love that person and you're not trying to receive a reciprocal benefit by you being merciful so you get something back. I don't even know if you understood that. Go back and listen to the podcast. <laughs> but we don't want rejoicing to be a part of anything with respect to those who, who have evil intent for us. It's a wrong use of joy. And God says, if you do that, I will take my judgment from them. Why? Because you aren't representing me well to them. I'll remove the difficulty to stop you rejoicing because that's not how I feel about them. <laughs> He's serious about this loving your enemies thing and making sure the joy is used best. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask you for your mercy and grace, please, to help us be the kind of people who can always serve you well in this area of joy.